All right. Uh, the passage that was read for us there by Brian and Lois and their cute little baby uh, was Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. So I'd encourage you, if you have your Bible, open it there, or on your phone, open it there, and uh, we're going to work our way through uh, that text this morning. So I learned something new this week, and I'm quite proud of myself. Although I do not know Latin, I, I learned a, a new phrase that is in Latin. It is omni trium perfectum. Anybody want to venture to guess what that is? <laughs> what, what's that? Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, you're, you're very close. In fact, almost bang on. Everything that comes in threes is perfect, or every set of three is complete. Not always true, uh, but I think that the main ideas that we're going to talk about uh, today and engage out of our text will show us that that indeed is the case. I had to use that title. From it, we get our English uh, rule of three, which is, you know, good things come in threes, or things that come in threes are inherently more humorous, satisfying, or effective than any number of things. So, you know, it wouldn't be the stooges, the two stooges, you know, it has to be the three stooges, right? Um, Lord of the Rings, of course, has to be, it's the trilogy, the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Uh, any movie series that has, you know, four or more, I think, lose their effectiveness. Like, do we really need nine Star Wars movies? Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, thinking about that, uh, nine is three multiples of three, so maybe that is the ultimate uh, omne trium perfectum. I don't know. Nonetheless, today's text is not the typical three-point sermon. Isn't it amazing how most sermons break down to three points? I think it's this principle at play. But today's text is actually the ultimate, the ultimate omni trium perfectum. And here's why. Uh, to boot, it's not just an omni trium perfectum, but they're going to alliterate like I did not do last week. So, Acts 4, 1 through 12 talks about what really completes the Christian life. Okay, this is important. Here they are. This is what completes the Christian life. Persecution, power, and proclamation. When these three things are evident in our lives, we know that we are on to something special. How many of you were expecting three different words? I mean like, ah, pastor, I thought you were going to say health, wealth, and happiness. <laughs> I mean, isn't that the perfect complete set of three? Like, where's the prosperity in the alliteration, right? Like, give me prosperity, power, privilege, I can deal with that, right? But persecution, power, and proclamation? Listen, if you want to truly prosper as a Christian, you're going to have to come to terms and embrace these three things because they are so interdependent, so interconnected, synonymous, that one cannot exist without the other. In fact, I would say most of us would go to the middle and say, I, I, I desire God's power in my life, but if the other two are absent, you're not going to fully realize God's power in your life. So let's get into this. Let's look at this Christian trifecta, this omne, uh, what is it again? Trium perfectum. <laughs> Number one, persecution. Let's look at that. We're going to reread the first four verses and stop there for a bit. I want to say, by the way, that these three, are, are literally like three very, very full sermons. You know me, I can preach 45 minutes in a heartbeat, and each one of these could be 45 minutes. You guys wanna, 
hey, we're starting early. You want to go till noon? <laughs> but I guess Lake Arak would miss out. So let's, get, let's, let's deal with the first four verses here, okay? And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. So let's refresh our memory a little bit. Jesus had some intimate time with his 12 before he ascended back to heaven, gave them some instructions on being witnesses to wait for the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was given, right? And uh, that was the power from on high that they would need to be effective uh, for Christ. And the the very first sign or wonder that was done was their ability to speak in other languages so that people could hear the gospel. And Peter delivered this amazing, uh, very short sermon. <laughs> I, I guess I have something to learn, don't I? <laughs> and uh, and 3,000 people were saved. And right after that, you know, they're in the uh, Solomon's portico, and there's this, there's this man who is crippled from birth. He's begging. That's the only way he could get his next meal. And he's begging Peter and John for silver or gold or whatever they had, some pocket change, and he, they said, no, we don't have that, but what we have, we'll give to you for free in the name of Jesus, get up and walk, and he did. And he was not just walking, but leaping and jumping and praising God. And as a result of that, it raised quite a few eyebrows, and, it, and, it, and Peter seized the opportunity. If you listen to uh, my message last week that was recorded online, by the way, the audio now is much better. The audio is there. Like last week, the audio on the video portion was so bad. But anyway, if you want to go, want to go back and listen to that, I talked about what it means to be an effective witness because Peter seized the opportunity to declare how this man and why he was healed. There is a reason for it. Pointed people to Jesus and salvation. So that's the context. Now... Uh, the ante is upped a little bit, and now we have not just the men of Israel, but we have the leaders, the rulers of Israel getting annoyed and saying, you've got to stop this. And uh, so they were arrested. They were held in custody overnight. But you'll see as the chapters go on, and this progresses so rapidly, we're in chapter 4. By chapter 7, one of the Christians is, is martyred killed for his belief in Jesus. That's Stephen. We're going to get there yet. But it increases from being arrested to, and held overnight to now being imprisoned more long-term to threats, beatings, a stoning. And in chapter 8, it says, or beginning of chapter 7, no, chapter 8, a great persecution broke out against the church, which led to the rapid expansion uh, or spread of the gospel. It is through persecution that the church is blessed, that it grows. And it is through persecution that individual Christians are blessed. This is why persecution is the very first of this trium perfectum. Um, our lives actually are not complete without it, and I'll prove it to you. So Jesus, in Matthew chapter 5, early on with his disciples, he said, Sermon on the Mount, he's not just teaching his 12, but crowds of people, and he says, blessed, blessed, blessed are you, happy are you, satisfied are you, complete, perfect are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you and falsely accuse you on account of my name. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven, 
For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And then he said to them, You're the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall it be? How shall its saltiness be restored? You see, <laughs> if you're going out there and you're not meeting some resistance because of your faith and because of standing up for Jesus and talking about him, there's no effect. There's no salt there. Like there's no flavor to your life. And you won't be blessed as a result. It's no longer good for anything, Jesus said, except to be thrown out and trampled under one's feet, uh, under uh, people's feet. You know, it's, it's interesting. We have, Jesus said we essentially, as, as Christians, have two choices. We can put up with some persecution, not just put up, actually be blessed by that, or we can be put out to be trampled under, other, under people's feet. Like, what, which one do you want to choose? To be blessed or to be stomped on and thrown out? It's pretty clear. And so Peter, later on in his letter to the church in his epistle, like he lived it, but then he also wrote about it, and that's the order, right? We gotta live things before we actually talk about them. So he said, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial, this is 1 Peter 4, when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Oh man, we have to be so clear as a church. A large bank account does not equal blessing. Sharing in Christ's sufferings equals a blessing. It's so clear. That was good timing. Uh, last week we had uh, uh, one, <laughs> sadly, one day of the year set aside to pray and remember persecuted Christians around the world, the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. And I tell you, like, we ought to be learning from them. And they even say they're praying for us. They're praying for us. The persecuted church around the world is praying that we're going to learn from them and from God what it means to stand up for Jesus in an increasingly hostile culture. And it's only going to get more hostile, and I think that's a good thing. <laughs> because then we can reveal the glory of Christ more, right, in our lives, and we can speak about him more. So three things about persecution. Here comes the sermon within the sermon. Okay, real quick. Number one, speaking for Christ has consequences. That's the first two verses up here. So when you, when you teach and you proclaim in Jesus, specifically here, the resurrection from the dead, it doesn't go over very well with people. Never has. But it is the power of God under salvation, the gospel. Like, I mean, the death and the resurrection of Jesus are core to the gospel. So we can't shy away from that. But there will always be someone who doesn't like what we have to say when we proclaim something in Jesus. And, and that's the key. We have to be careful that we're not just, you know, shooting off at the mouth and just saying weird things. We have to declare actually what's in Jesus and the resurrection is the first place we should go. Don't worry about all these other little peripheral arguments and this and that and all these things that get people riled up and distracted and sidelined. Go straight to the resurrection of Christ because it's in the resurrection that we have life. Amen? So, 
The people, the rulers that were really upset, okay, so the ruling council of that day was made up of a, a number of different people, and uh, they didn't get along very well. It was kind of like, you know, the prototype for the first strata council or something like that, right? <clears throat> Nonetheless, our strata is really good. It's because I'm president. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> it's really good. It's really good. It truly is. I've been on some really bad ones, by the way, you know, lawsuits and the whole nine yards. Nonetheless, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, they were two different streams of thought within Judaism, and these guys didn't get along. You know why? Because the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. In fact, they didn't believe in the afterlife. They, they, they taught a form of annihilationism, which means that God will just destroy you, and there's nothing left after that. Eternity doesn't mean a thing. And so they also denied the spiritual world, so no angels, no demons, none of that. That was the Sadducees. The Pharisees, on the other hand, believed in all of that kind of stuff. So if you want to remember how to dif uh, differentiate between the Sadducees and the Pharisees, see the Sadducees, they didn't believe in the resurrection, no hope, no future, so they were Sadducee. Right? They were sad, you see. The Pharisees could see far, you see. They could see far. They had eternity in mind. They were, so the one group was sad, you see, the other could see far, you see. All right. Yeah. There, there are kids' songs about this, you guys. Like, there are old-school kids' songs about this. And so uh, go find them on YouTube and listen to them. Fantastic. Speaking for Christ has consequences. Make it about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Secondly, living for Christ has consequences. You see that in the next verse and then also in verse 9. Uh, Peter and John and the rest of the disciples, they got into huge trouble, not just for speaking for Christ, but for, for doing good things, for living for Christ. I mean, here, like, Peter says, if we're on trial for doing a good thing, well, like, I don't understand it, but here we are. <laughs> like, we raised the guy up who was lame from birth. Like, what's wrong with that? Wasn't, wasn't us who did it, by the way. It was Jesus. Uh, we're, we're just the messengers here. We're just uh, doing this in, in his name. But Paul picked up on this, and he said, indeed, all who desire, in 2 Timothy 3, all who desire not just to speak about Jesus, but to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So just by your good deeds, for living a good life, a godly life in Christ, you're going to receive some, some pushback. Don't stop living for Jesus. Be that salt, be that light, do good things. They will see your works and they will glorify your Father in heaven. That's another way that we can bear witness for Jesus. But our motives will always be questioned when we do something, even if it's as dramatic as healing somebody who is crippled or raising somebody from the dead. Three, the church under persecution, the church cannot be, so there's consequences for speaking for Christ, for living for Christ, but here's the thing. The church cannot and will not be stopped because of those consequences. So clear. So we should never stop speaking or living for Christ because we are on the winning team. Verses 3 and 4, uh, you know, uh, Peter, so here's the thing, right? The deck was so stacked against Peter and John. There's two of them. Look how many other people were there. It says the rulers, which was the whole council of the Pharisees and Sadducees, there was the elders, there was the scribes, there was the high priest and two members of his family. 
it was like uh, probably 30 or 40 on two. It was massively intimidating, massively intimidating to Peter and to John. They were arrested, they were, they were detained, and what happened? It says right after that, oh, that the number, uh, that, that uh, people responded to Jesus and the number of men increased to 5,000. You can't stop the church. Jesus said it. He said, <clears throat> he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against this. There, there are regions of the world, friends, that where the church is exploding today and it is in the areas where there is the most persecution. So do you want to know where the explosive growth of the church is happening right now? It is happening in Africa and Asia. A little bit in Latin America. North America is either flatline, dead and declining, as is Europe. Europe is more dark than, uh, than North America. Asia, and I'm not talking like Asia's big, huge continent. I'm talking like on the, on the west side of, of Asia, like the Middle Eastern, what we would call some of the Middle Eastern countries. <clears throat> so that is where the church is ex exploding. And I want to give you a list of the top 10 countries that are experiencing the most persecution in the world. North Korea, Afghanistan, Somalia, Libya, Pakistan, Eritrea, Sudan, Yemen, uh, Iran, India, and Syria. They're all Asian or African and the country where Christianity is growing the, the most quickly is in Iran. What, what does that tell you about persecution? What does that tell you about church growth? Just put that in your back pocket. I've got to move on. I mean, like, there's Sermon 1, okay? Sermon 2, <laughs> power. Let's talk about power. Uh, not experienced, really, without some pushback for our faith. Acts, uh, beginning in verse 5. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all were whoever the high priestly family. Remember, stack deck. And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? <clears throat> then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, I'm just going to stop there for a minute. <clears throat> so Peter had already received the Holy Spirit, right? Acts 2. But at this very moment, when he was questioned about where this power came from, the Holy Spirit of God immediately filled him. Filled him. And he said, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means... This man is healed. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. <laughs> the <laughs> Don't you just love that? I mean, here was a guy who had the audacity to tell his judges, a whole big intimidating group of them, that they were guilty of crucifying the Savior of the world. 
that they had rejected and crucified Jesus. Peter, days before, a couple of months before, had been so frightened to admit to a, a girl, a servant girl, that he even knew Jesus. And now he is a changed person and he publicly proclaims Jesus and the resurrection in court, where the same court where Jesus was tried and where 500 yards from where he was tried, he was crucified. In that same court, Peter is now so bold where he couldn't once before even look a, a young servant girl in the eye and even say, I know that man. What changed? Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus told them, but you will receive power. And this is when they needed it most, when, when their backs were against the wall. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And we see that progressing from here rapidly uh, to Acts chapter 8. All of a sudden, boom, the church is hugely persecuted and going throughout all Judea, all Samaria, like just scattered. But the gospel, Jesus went with them. Uh, <clears throat> so Marcy and I, have, I've shared this before, but we're, we're, we're doing online devotionals through the YouVersion Bible app. Uh, we're, we're, do, we're doing this together with uh, my sister, my brother, his wife, uh, niece. And uh, so like we're, as a family, holding each other accountable to the daily readings and we share what we're learning through that. And so uh, since November 1st, so the last week or so, we've been in Ezekiel. Uh, we always go like a Psalm or Proverbs or Ecclesiastes or whatever, then there's an Old Testament, other Old Testament passage, prophetic passage, and then there's New Testament, right? Gospels, that kind of thing. We're in the epistles right now of Paul, but we're in Ezekiel, and this is amazing. So like in, in Ezekiel uh, chapter two, it says that God speaks to him now in the Old Testament is different, like the Holy Spirit would enter people or rest on them and the Spirit would sort of come and go. New Testament, not, not at all. You put your faith in Christ, the Spirit is given to you as permanent residence, right? But in the Old Testament, different. So the Holy Spirit enters Ezekiel and he is given God's word to devour. Uh, Ezekiel literally said, so I ate it and it tasted sweet as honey in my mouth. So Holy Spirit came, God gave Ezekiel his word, he ate his word, and it was so part of who he was that God said, okay, now I want you to go speak the message that I've given you. And then he says, you're going to face great opposition, but he was told in verse 9, chapter 2, do not be afraid of them or terrified by them. Why? Because my spirit is in you. It's not your responsibility, God said to them, whether people listen or fail to listen. Not your responsibility. You are simply to speak the message that God gives you. And so, um, Ezekiel's life was crazy. Uh, it was really crazy. And he obeyed God to the letter. And the glory of the Lord appeared to Ezekiel time and time again, and the Spirit entered him and said, when I speak to you, I will open your mouth and, and you shall say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Ezekiel never spoke his own words. He only spoke what God had given him. This is what the sovereign Lord says. And so last couple of days, we've been in Ezekiel 11, 12, 13. So like just in those three chapters, one, two, three, four, four times the Holy Spirit either rested upon Ezekiel or entered him. And then 14 times in three chapters, it says 
uh, Ezekiel said, this is what the sovereign Lord says. People didn't like it, but Ezekiel was only asking, only doing what God was asking him to do by the power of the Holy Spirit. Matthew chapter 10. Jesus uh, picks up on this, and it is no different than the days of Ezekiel, except for the Holy Spirit is now a permanent residence in his followers' lives. Well, he wasn't at that point, but in Acts. He's, he's foreshadowing what would come after he left and he, he sent his spirit to them. So, Acts, or sorry, Matthew chapter 10. He said, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as servants and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts, and they will flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Now get this, verse 19, Matthew 10. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you're going to speak or what you're going to say. For what you are to say will be given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. And this hasn't stopped. I get it, uh, friends. The fear is real. It's real for me too. How will I be received? What are people going to do to me? What are they going to say to me? What am I going to say? I'm convinced that when we are trusting Jesus and we're praying and his spirit is guiding us and, telling, and, 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 and empowering us and filling us, that we will be given in every moment, at that moment, the exact words to say. So Jesus said, don't be anxious. God told Ezekiel, don't fear. Just speak. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I'd encourage you, when you see an opportunity, just start speaking. The Holy Spirit will totally give you words. You're not going to even know, like don't even rehearse it. Okay, rehearse the gospel. You need to know what the gospel is. But don't rehearse exactly how you're going to say it and all that kind of stuff. Just start talking. And you will be amazed at what's going to come out of your mouth. So during the American Civil War, as a result of a family tragedy, a soldier was granted permission to seek a hearing from the president. He wanted to request exemption from military service. However, when he arrived at the White House, he was refused entry and he was sent away. (laughs) So he went and sat in a nearby park, like not knowing what to do. Uh, A young boy, a little boy, came across him and remarked on how unhappy the soldier looked. And before long, the soldier found himself telling the young boy everything. And eventually the boy said, come with me. So he led the the dejected soldier back to the White House. And they they went around back, but none of the guards stopped them. Even the generals and the high-ranking government officials stood to attention and let them pass through, and the soldier was amazed. And finally, they came to the presidential office, and without knocking, the young boy just pushed the door open and walked straight in. And Abraham Lincoln, standing there, turned from his conversation with the Secretary of State and said, what can I do for you, Tad? And Tad said, Dad, this soldier needs to talk to you. 
And St. Paul writes in his letter, he said, through him, through Jesus, we have access to the Father by one spirit. And in the name of Jesus, we, we can come before the Father. We have full access through that spirit. And Jesus is interceding for us. And the Holy Spirit comes to give us power in that moment. And all we simply need to do is rely on Jesus and the work of his spirit by which the Father will give us what we're asking. Robert Murray McShane said, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. And yet he said, distance makes no difference because he is praying for me. So next time you're in that scary situation where you're not sure what you're going to say but you have an opportunity to witness or there's some pushback or persecution because of your faith, just picture Jesus in that next, right beside you in that next room praying fervently to the Father for you. And the Father will listen because it's his Son. And it's done through the Holy Spirit and that Holy Spirit will give you power to face any situation that you need to face and give you words for any situation where you need words. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul said this. I love this. There's something that I actually hadn't even... It, I don't know why. I just sort of always overlooked it. But just, just this week, it's just glaringly in front of me, 2 Corinthians chapter 3 Paul wrote, through the Spirit, we are made sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Through the Spirit, we are made sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Today, we're going to celebrate this new covenant. We're going to remember what Jesus did for us. And so through the Holy Spirit of God, we can tell people about the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Amen? And we don't have to fear. Do not be anxious, Jesus said. Okay, so the thing that will complete this trium perfecta is proclamation. Let's finish it off with the last two verses. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders which has become the cornerstone, and there is, no, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Peter is so clear. Um, we... We have to proclaim the gospel and we specifically have to use the name of Jesus. Peter said, because like at that time, <clears throat> people were waiting for the Messiah and a lot of moms were naming their little babies Jesus. You, you, you go down to like South America, Latin America today, there's all kinds of Jesus down there. Peter said, this Jesus, this Jesus, and then he got even more specific where he said, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Okay, Peter said, I'm going to be unequivocally clear to you folks. It's not just any Jesus. It is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. In proclaiming Jesus, there's four things we need to know. <clears throat> Here's my last sermon real quick. <laughs> Number one, we have to use the name of Jesus. So I'm, I'm part of a, like a, uh, a committee uh, for our conference of churches in BC. 
Mennonite Brethren Conference of Churches, and I'm on the pastoral ministries committee, and it's our responsibility to interview new pastors coming into our conference who want to be credentialed or ordained and licensed. And did one recently. So one of the questions, it's a a long thing. Each person writes like single-spaced 30, 40 pages, and there's all kinds of theological questions and doctrinal and ministry questions and life questions. One of them is... uh, in your context, how would you share the gospel? What would you say? And so uh, a recent candidate had all of this stuff that, you know, it was good, it referred to Jesus, but not once was the name of Jesus ever mentioned in his declaration of the gospel. And I'm like, man, where's that name? You, you can talk about God till you're blue in the face. Like there are gods everywhere in our culture. Small g. Hinduism has got thousand alone or whatever. Don't just talk about God. Talk about Jesus Christ of Nazareth. You have to use the name of Jesus. Peter said to them in Acts 2, repent and be baptized, his first sermon. He did it every time. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. There is power in the name of Jesus. Uh, Secondly, so we've got to talk about the name of Jesus. We have to talk about the resurrection of Jesus. We've already clarified that. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 said, hey, here's the gospel. Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised on the third day. And he appeared to Peter, then the 12, then to 500 at one time. Historically proven event, this resurrection. Talk about it. Uh, Third, we have to talk about the supremacy of Jesus. In fact, this sub-point under proclamation (laughs) is an old sermon. Peter declares him the cornerstone from the prophecy of Psalm 118. And Peter will talk about it later in 1 Peter chapter 2. The cornerstone, it's an amazing study. But basically, cornerstone means the head. Superior. Authority. Supremacy. The most important. Uh, I grew up listening to a lot of low German, Plautdeutsch, and I never understood any of it. But one word that I use all the time is the word scheif or sheaf. My dad used it all the time. It means that something's off. It's awry. It's not straight. It's crooked. And my dad, same as me, OCD. Everything has to be bang on, right? That's shife. Shife. (laughs) Peter is saying, without Jesus, everything is off. It's off kilter. The whole thing is going to collapse. It's no good unless he's the cornerstone. Nothing will be straight. Oh, I gotta move on. And we have to talk about the salvation of Jesus, the salvation of Jesus. There is, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven by which, given among men by which we must be saved. And the Apostle Paul picks up on that in, in Philippians chapter 2. And if we don't talk about the salvation of Jesus, that he came to save us, to rescue us, because when we continue down our own path and we stay in our sin, we're hopeless. But in Christ, there's hope. 
we are saved, we are rescued, we are delivered in Jesus. In Philippians 2, the Apostle Paul wrote that because Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death on a cross, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. And Paul said, in him, in this Jesus, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. And so, as we partake in together in the Lord's Supper, which is a, a meal that is reserved for those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ, who are living in right relationship with him, with God through Christ and with others in the body, in his body. We want to do acknowledging that it was Jesus who was persecuted. He suffered in his body, and in his body he bore our shame and our sorrow, and he made the just payment for our sin when he shed his blood. It is in Jesus where we have power. It is in the precious blood of the Lamb that there is power power, wonder-working power in the precious blood of the Lamb. And it is in his sacrifice, his death, and his resurrection that proclaims to us that salvation comes from him, is in him, and through him alone. So Matthew wrote, as they were eating, just before Jesus went to the cross, before he was arrested and put to death, as they were eating, Jesus took bread. And so, this is the only way we can do it these days, but there is a thin little foil on top of the juice lid. Don't pull the lid off the juice, but pull that little foil off, which will reveal the bread, the wafer. It says that Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, take and eat, this is my body. So Lord Jesus, as I, as I break this bread, I am so cognizant of the, of the fact that you suffered in your body. You were persecuted to the point of death on a cross. You suffered for my sins. You suffered for my shame. You suffered for my grief and my sorrow. And for this, we say thank you. Take and eat. This is my body. Let's partake together. And then he took a cup, it says. If you want to open your cup carefully, you can do that. That's the next layer. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. Lord, we give thanks for this symbol 
of your precious blood that you poured out, your life given that we might be redeemed, forgiven of our sins, our sins atoned for. That the wrath of a holy and a righteous God was appeased and satisfied because of the shed blood of Jesus, we give thanks. That we do not need to bear that ourselves, but that you bore it for us. Thank you, Lord, that you were humble and that you were obedient to the point of death. And we praise you for that. And we thank you for that. And we say there is power. There is power, wonder-working power, in the precious blood of the Lamb. Let's partake together.